You want to go ahead and read the thing? All right. On the night of May 10th, 1849, thousands of citizens gathered in the most aristocratic square of New York City, centered around the magnificent edifice of the Astor Place Opera House. The Opera House had been built by the elite of the city for the elite of the city. Admission was expensive, a dress code was strictly enforced, and many measures were taken to ensure that the rabble and riffraff had difficulty entering. On stage, a performance of Macbeth was being hampered by ongoing boos and hisses. Outside, the mob was throwing stones at the barricaded windows and trying to force their way inside. The police, called out at the behest of the wealthy to maintain order, were being pelted with paving stones and hopelessly outnumbered. Then the military arrived. First on horseback to try to press back the throng, and then with infantry. The order was given to fire over the heads of the crowd, and when that failed to disperse them, the order was given to fire into the crowd. As their own military fired on the civilians, the crowd melted away, leaving the soldiers to grimly guard the opera house while the dead and wounded lay on the pavement. In this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1849 Astor Place Riot. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Crowd Management Specialist for Relative Disasters, Disaster Avoidance. And I'm Ella, Theater Manager for Relative Disasters Opera House. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for that horrifying story. <laughs> I'm sorry, yes. the U.S. military was involved in this? Okay, I know yeah. we'll get there. Yep, yep. Uh, uh, so where would you like our, to start? <laughs> well, I want to start with our primary source for this episode, which is uh, a f basically firsthand account written in 1849 mm -hmm. called Account of the Terrific and Fatal Riot at the New York Astor Place Opera House. Can I just say I night. love those titles? Oh, th this title is like 50 words long. So many uh, adjectives. The full title is Account of the Terrific and Fatal Riot at the New York Astor Place Opera House on the night of May 10th, 1849, semicolon, <laughs> with the quarrels of Forrest and McCready, including all the causes which led to that awful tragedy, exclamation point. Oh boy. <laughs> wherein an infuriated mob was quelled by the public authorities and military with its mournful termination in the sudden death or mutilation of more than 50 citizens with full and authentic particulars. And that's our episode, folks. By the firm of H.M. Ranney, published in 1849. I just love um, how thorough that title is. Yes, it's very thorough. It's it, it, You don't even need to read the book. Nope. It's just all right there in the title. Um, so to start with, we want to talk about uh, what theater was in the mid-1800s. And honestly, the closest thing I could come up with is basically an analog to today's modern, like, super hardcore sports fans okay uh if you had a local theater that was your local gathering place that was your uh source of civic pride mm -hmm. you would go and like boo other performances at other theaters that were like your crosstown oh, rivals no. and 
like this was this was how theater was done. It was very much a contact sport in the day. I'll be honest, Greg. Um, that sounds like more fun than theater is today. Ah, uh, it was to a certain point. Okay. Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You point, don't want to tip it over into actual hooliganism, yeah. right? And and that's basically where it usually ended up. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. Riots were planned affairs. Okay, it was like, oh, this rival theater is going to put on you know, a performance, we're going to go riot there. See, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's this weird, like, we cannot wrap our heads around it in the modern sense. The other thing that is hard to wrap our heads around in the modern sense is the sheer prevalence of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are anecdotes about gold miners in, in California going around and just like spending their nights around the campfire reenacting Shakespeare shows because everybody knew the words and everything. When actors would be up on stage performing, Mm -hmm. you would have members of the audience like shouting along with them. It was sort of like going to a concert for your favorite rock band and just singing along with the, uh, you know, with the songs. It's, it's bananas. Yeah. I got to believe that uh, Shakespeare would have enjoyed that. What do you think? I, he absolutely right? would have enjoyed that. He, <laughs> it's his how you're shows supposed were to always for the masses. Exactly. <laughs> Around the campfire with your buddies. <laughs> L- loud and drunk. That was sort of what they did. Uh, and it's also important to understand that at the time, there was really no concept of American style acting. Acting was very, very dominated by the British. Okay. Uh, the British were considered to be the actors they were considered to be the best at it and their style of acting was very british uh it was very subdued and refined and very formal mm-hmm. um and you know how we sort of have these this idea of these national identities of the british are very sort of yes well then anyway and americans are sort of well, let's do this and yeah. uh so that brings us to the main conflict here uh which is when the Americans finally got their first acting superstar. So we're going to talk about Edwin Forrest. Uh, so, I just have a yeah. quick question for you. Is he related yeah, to absolutely. the General Forrest of the Civil War? No relation? No. Okay. No relation. No relation. Thank goodness. <laughs> I was going to say, if this goes full circle, I'm going to be... <laughs> nope. Nope. It, his, his, his rise did not lead to the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, thank um, you. That's all I wanted to know. <laughs> so... Edwin Forrest mm-hmm. uh, was originally from Philadelphia, okay. and he is a classic American success story. His parents were both immigrants, mm-hmm. and uh, he worked his way up in a, uh, you know, working odd jobs, and then uh, sort of got discovered by accident to have a real talent for um, Shakespeare. And this is the this is the joy of this story, okay? Because mm-hmm. I got to tell you how this talent was discovered. Yes, please. Um, he was apprenticed to uh, a ship chandler, mm-hmm. and while attending a lecture in early 1820, uh, he volunteered to participate in an experiment on the effects of nitrous oxide. Oh, honey! Now, uh. While he was under the influence of this gas, Mm -hmm. there was a Philadelphia lawyer, a very prominent lawyer named John Swift, uh, who was in sort of the audience for this demonstration. And under the influence of nitrous oxide, he broke into uh, the famous Richard III soliloquy. Ooh. 
And this impressed the lawyer so much that the lawyer was like, dude, you need to audition this guy at a local theater. And he won a part and, you know, became an actor. And that's the most Hollywood thing I've ever heard. It of. is. It is the most American. Success How did you story. get your it's job? Bizarre. Well, I was high and a lawyer. Well, I was. Me. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, could you just do you know which soliloquy it was? I'm just curious. I, I don't. I don't. I wish I did. Um, I'm just trying to we know trying to develop a we, full picture here. <laughs> well, we know it was from Richard the Third. That's all. That's all I, I know about all it. Right, but anyway, um, so he started off acting in minor roles, works his way up in the theater, and then he hits huge success mm-hmm. at the Bowery Theater in New York City. So uh, once again, we talk about these theaters basically being the equivalent of like home stadiums for for modern sports teams. Mm-hmm. So the Bowery Theater was in the Five Points neighborhood of New York, which at the time had a huge influx of immigration. And the immigrants and the native New Yorkers did not like each other. There was a lot of violence, but what brought them all together was the Bowery Theater. Theater. So so they would come together to support their their local theater. Mm -hmm. And when Edwin Forrest performed as Othello at the Bowery, uh, he was an overnight smash success. Um, you cannot describe how huge of a star this guy was. Okay. He was, he was, if you can name any modern movie star, he was the top four or five of them rolled together. He was so famous. <laughs> All I can picture is like a bundle of great hair and a huge yes. smile. <laughs> yep. Perfect. There team. it is. Yep. Uh, and, and he was so famous that like, he was just, when you thought of American acting, you thought of Edwin Forrest. Right. It was that, that simple. Um, so he, he was a huge success in New York. He then went on tour where he was a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1836, he went to England. So this became a story of, you know, the, the local guy goes abroad to the home country of Shakespeare and, he was well received, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the screaming, falling over themselves, throwing their underwear on stage sort of reception that he was used to in the United States. Oh, that's hard on your ego, isn't it? It was a little hard on his ego. Uh, however, he was well received, but it was you know a British well received. He was you know <laughs> yeah, that's politely applauded. From yeah, American exactly. Well-received. Okay, he was he was politely applauded. He wasn't you know. Showered with undergarments. Gotcha. Um, yeah, we keep those here. <laughs> we keep those for American <laughs> theaters only. <laughs> and uh, at the time of his American tour, he met up with one of the most prominent uh, English actors, mm-hmm. William McCready. So we want to talk about William McCready. Now, William McCready is the exact opposite of Edwin Forrest. He was born into a theater family. Uh, his father was a theater manager. His mother was an actor. Uh, he was, uh, educated in private schools. He, uh, had very famous runs on, in every famous Shakespeare role you can think of from Romeo all the way through Macbeth. See, that's just uh, not an appealing story the way Mr. Forrest is. Sure. However, he was very, very good. Where, where Forrest's style was, was definitely not the British style. Mm-hmm. Um, McCready was a master of the British style. Okay. So it was, it was very much a sort of technician versus showman oh. kind of, kind of rivalry, yeah, I could see but it tension. wasn't a rivalry. 
It wasn't a rivalry, and that's important to note. When Forrest came over, McCready was very interested in him. He was he was older than Forrest mm-hmm. as well, so he didn't see him as a rival. Uh, in fact, he he sort of. Uh, he put him up mm-hmm. while he was in the country. He he had him stay with him, and they talked about theater stuff, and they became, if not friends, they became friendly acquaintances, okay. basically. Uh, and then something went sour when Forrest toured again. So Forrest's performance of Shakespeare was not what the British audiences were expecting, and they weren't they they were welcoming of him and appreciative of the style, but it wasn't he wasn't a big success. And his second round through, theaters were nowhere near as full as his first round. Oh. So he kinda got it into his head that McCready was going behind his back sabotaging him. Now there is no evidence of this Mm. none but Forrest really came to believe this you know that there there was no other reason for why these crowds weren't as weren't as big the second time through so it must be McCready doing something and McCready was sort of blindsided by all this Mm -hmm. he had no idea what was going on in Forrest's head uh, until McCready was in a show of Hamlet at the theater in Edinburgh Mm mm-hmm uh, Edwin Forrest was seated in a private box as befitted an actor of his stature, and he hissed MacReady's performance. Ooh. Now, this is not just one of those things of like, you know, booing and hissing. This mm-hmm. was absolutely unheard of. Um, yeah, it and, seems really rude to hiss at someone on stage. It, it, <laughs> is, it, it is. No, it's super rude to do it. Uh, it's very, uh, it's part of the American theater hooliganism at the time. Gotcha. A lot of hissing. But but it was certainly not okay in Britain. Mm. Um, and also the manner in which he did it. Like, this is basically somebody McCready considered to be, like I said, a friendly acquaintance mm-hmm. standing up and doing this. The British press absolutely pilloried him. Ugh. And, um, you know, MacReady's feelings were hurt and he had no further dealings with Mr. Forrest. And, uh, and Forrest had to leave the country. Uh, but of course he came back to the U.S. and picked right back up where he left off. But he had this lingering resentment. Yeah, now he's got a grudge. Now he's got a grudge. The hissing exactly. didn't get it out of his system. Not at all. So he went to therapy and became a better person. Nope, that was not a thing. He went back on stage, got lauded as before, mm-hmm. and and got even more convinced that he was the right. So. <sighs> okay. Now we have to come to the Astor Place Opera House itself. It so, sounds really fancy. Was it fancy? It's super fancy. Uh, so, as we said, theaters were sort of the, the sports stadiums at the time. Mm-hmm. And the rich folks of New York City did not want that riffraff sharing their theater space. Uh, Side note here, we've got to talk about the nickname for the rich folks of New York City. Please. Uh, They were referred to as the Upper Tens, uh, which was an expression that referred to the 10,000 most wealthy people in New York City. Oh, okay. And uh, they were sort that was sort of the, the modern equivalent would be like the one percenters. So these aren't just like regular rich people. These are the rich, rich people. Okay. These are the people who own several mansions in several places and made all their money by exploiting their workforce. No, not in laws. America. Like, 
this is these are the the <laughs> richest of the rich. 19th century America. So the Astor Place Opera House was built specifically for the rich folks. It was built. Could regular people still go? Yes. However, <laughs> the way that the theater was constructed mm-hmm. was that there were your standard box seats mm-hmm. for for the wealthy, the non-standard super box seats for the super wealthy, <laughs> and then the uh, the chair seating for the regular wealthy. Okay. Um, now, these were not – most theaters just had, like, wooden bench seating. Mm-hmm. These were, like, upholstered plush chairs, nice. okay? And the only way you could sit in either a booth or a chair was by subscription, okay? Ooh, okay. So you had to fork up a lot of money to be able to sit here, with the one exception – which was the balcony seatings, the nosebleeds, which were bench seatings. And those were uh, tickets ranging anywhere from $1, which was still a huge amount Mm -hmm. in 1840s, uh, to 25 cents, also a very large amount Mm -hmm. in the 1840s, but attainable by enough hooligans to get in there and make a nuisance of themselves from time to time. So they would usually contact the police to arrest people for disrupting the performances. Gotcha. Okay. Which was also not part of the culture at all. Mm-hmm. The the theater culture was you just you took your lumps, you performed anyway. Uh, so what winds up happening is that you have this uh, theater, and they built it basically on the corner of Broadway and the Bowery. Oh, it's so a you little pushback from that, but yeah, you could see it. Okay, uh, it it was sort of very provocatively placed for the regular working class people of mm-hmm. New York City. You know, you'd go home from your hard day at the docks and you'd see this massive, you know, classical Neo-Georgian sort of building with a sign that basically said you can't come in. There was a dress code to get into the Astor Place Opera <laughs> Please, House. tell me about the dress code. Was it ridiculous? Okay. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Uh, it was formal dress with kid gloves. Huh. Okay. Well, you so, don't see that much more these days. No. Do you? No. Okay. So if you couldn't afford to spend the, you know, the money on the outfit, you definitely couldn't afford to spend the money on the tickets. Yeah, kid gloves are not cheap. No. Or they were no, not they, at this time, right? And, and they certainly didn't last long. <laughs> They're very custom. Yes. So you already have this sort of unpleasant feelings between the Bowery theater goers, the Broadway theater goers and the Astor place opera house. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you got a pile on top of that, the anti British sentiment at the time. Sure. So at the time among the working class being called English, those were fighting words. Uh, it, it meant you you thought you were too fancy and too good for other people. I'm sorry. And we're like one, two generations removed from English citizens. Yes. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, it's bad feelings left over, not only from the revolution uh-huh. and the War of 1812, but also the fact that at this time, the major immigration group is the Irish. Who famously are not they fans are, of the British. No, especially not in 1840s, (laughs) as they're having to leave their homeland behind because they're being starved to death by their British landlords. Oh, that's what's going on. Okay. Feelings are not good. No. (laughs) Okay, I got you. 
You've got the people who grew up in New York who don't like the British because they can remember the War of 1812. Mm -hmm. You've got the Irish who've immigrated to New York who don't like the British because the British. Right. And then you've got the wealthy folks who are seen in their modern vernacular as very English, you know, very fancy, very hoity-toity. Sure. Now, what do people like to do? They like to rally around figureheads. Yes, we do. So we love that. We have two great figureheads. We've got our homegrown American boy who drew himself up from nothing to become a famous actor in Edwin Forrest. And then we have the very poorly timed American tour of William McCready. Now, is this his first trip to the U.S.? I couldn't tell if it was his first trip, but it really feels like it was. <laughs> like a lot of the a lot of the documentation kind of supports the idea that it absolutely probably was his first time mm -hmm. in the U.S. Okay, and his tour wasn't going badly. Sure, that's important to to note. He was he was performing in in you know other theaters in Philadelphia, and uh, he was being he was being you know not not feted by the United Nations or anything, but he was being treated fairly well. Was he getting underwear on stage? He was not. Were people throwing bloomers at him? Okay. I doubt it. I Seriously, those are hard to throw, apparently. They're very heavy, yeah. They would be heavy, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, well, that's um, a good gauge. Okay. But he was, he was being well-received, mm -hmm. but then he shows up in New York. Uh-oh. And uh, the people at the Astor Place Opera House had commissioned him to perform Macbeth. Okay. And at the time, uh, sort of as a giant raised middle finger to both uh, <laughs> the British style of theater, the Astor Place Opera House and everything else, Edwin Forrest was commissioned to play Macbeth at the Broadway Theater. Of course. So you have these two competing productions of Macbeth going on at almost the exact same time. And the hooligans show up in force at the Astor Place Opera House. On May 7th of 1849, mm -hmm. McCready's performance of Macbeth is just ruined oh. as, as the hooligans start throwing rotten eggs, potatoes, shoes. Oh, jeez. Possibly fecal matter. Oh, um, on stage from their from their uh -huh. one dollar from their from their nosebleed seats. So they and, were paying uh, to be there. They were bringing bags of they poop were, and turnips, and that's what they were doing with exactly. their day. Okay, they were paying to be there to ruin the performance. That's okay. that's what they were doing, uh, and they were screaming so loudly <laughs> that the. Uh, the performers could not make themselves heard, so they had to finish their performance in pantomime. I'm sorry, they finished their performance as they were being, yeah, <laughs> as they were being booed in huge air quotes that aggressively. <laughs> yes. Oh yes. Wow, they really uh, are. That's troopers. dedication. That's dedication right there. <laughs> Respect. Okay. Uh, and of course, at uh, Forrest's performance, the audience was raucous and cheering, and mm -hmm. you know all that. So. <laughs> uh, McCready's like, okay, this obviously isn't working out. I'm gonna go home. Thanks, everybody. This America has been is fun not for me, <laughs> but this isn't this isn't what I came here to do. Okay, so he's gonna leave for Britain on the next boat. However, many of the backers of the Opera House, including none other than Herman Melville and Washington Irving, oh, okay, uh, signed a petition. To uh, 
assure him to stay for one more performance. They said, quote, the good sense and respect for order prevailing in this community will sustain you on the subsequent nights of your performance, end quote. Why do people talk like that? Uh, well, they wanted to reassure him, basically. I understand they that, to say, but it sounds to me like... Listen, this is an outlier. You'll be fine, we promise. It sounds because like gotta... the same kind of verbiage around the Titanic's unsinkability. Oh, yeah. Nothing yep, will yep. happen because we are not going to let anything happen. Exactly. Okay. And that, yes, that is a pattern that pops up now and now and again. It seems, you know, I feel like this whole <laughs> podcast is about that kind of... <laughs> It'll be fine. We just won't. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, of course, the the wealthy of the city, the upper tens, Mm -hmm. did have some very strong cards to play. Chief among them, uh, they could just tell the police force of the city to protect the opera house. Sure. Which they did. Um, Now, New York had just elected a new mayor, uh, Caleb S. Woodhull from the Whig Party, Mm -hmm. uh, defeating the people that Tammany Hall had backed. Okay. And the police chief, George Matzel, had gone to Woodhull and said, look, we do not physically have enough people to stop a serious riot. I'm sorry. Didn't they have, like, hundreds of policemen at this time they had about 900 nope they had about 900 policemen and even if they had put every single cop there they were still worried about it because they were expecting a crowd they were expecting (laughs) a couple thousand people to show up um okay so the mayor calls out the militia he commissions uh, General Charles Sanford to assemble the state's 7th Regiment mm-hmm. in Washington Square Park. And these guys came loaded. They came with mounted troops, uh, about 350 soldiers total, mm-hmm. and brought along some light artillery. Okay. The point was a show of force so that any potential rioters who showed up would be cowed and backed down. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. What they didn't realize was that there was an active campaign to further exacerbate the problem. So as I said, the Tammany Hall men had been defeated in the election and they wanted to embarrass the new mayor. Mm -hmm. The Bowery boys wanted to embarrass the wealthy and wanted to stick it to them. Right. And a handbill was commissioned with very inflammatory language. Never leave be, a paper trail. What were these people thinking? To be circulated. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, it had its intended effect. So I want to read this handbill to you in its entirety because it's amazing. Yes, please. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Quote, working men, shall Americans or English rule in this city? Oh, boy. The crew of the British steamer have threatened all Americans who shall dare express their opinions this night at the English aristocratic opera house. We advocate no violence. (laughs) Yep, that's important to have in there. Sure. Uh, We advocate advocate no violence, but a free expression of opinion to all public men. Hmm. Working men, free men, stand by your lawful rights. Signed, American committee, end quote. There's a lot going on in there, isn't there? 
There's a lot going on in there. First of all, it is absolutely a call to do violence. It is absolutely a call to come out and wreck something. I do uh, like the, the use of the word opinion. Yes. Uh, <laughs> our opinion is we should be able to throw these giant rocks through your windows. But no violence, um, please. No violence. And of course, their their repeated usage of the word English, right. which at the time was very much a dog whistle of classism. Mm -hmm. um, and to be fair... The classism did not start with them. Uh, the classism was very much in play, and the Astor Place Opera House was such a symbol of it. Mm -hmm. um, it sure, was only yeah. for the wealthy. No one else was allowed in. So, uh, as I said, they were expecting a couple thousand rioters. They were only going to call in the military if more rioters showed up than the police felt comfortable with. Okay. So... They had about 175 police officers stationed inside the theater mm -hmm. uh, to arrest any people who had bought tickets to, you know, come in and ruin the show again. Sure. And they had about 100 police officers stationed outside of the theater to tell any crowd that would show up to disperse. I'm sorry, tell? As in, yes. please go home, you're upsetting the wealthy people? Yes. Okay. That 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 was that was the uh, that was the basic idea. Of okay. It. There was also some some background where people had been you know there'd been a lot of sniping in the press. There'd been a lot of uh, what the American press of the eighteen forties. I don't believe never that. never. <laughs> uh, and both men, you know, Forrest had been made a figurehead of the American sentiment, and McCready mm -hmm. had been made a figurehead of the British sentiment, and it was just. There, this whole thing was primed to explode. Right. And so what winds up happening, the mayor and the police chief both go to the owners of the theater and they're like, look, this handbill's been circulated. This is, this is going to explode. Please cancel the show. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, do your job. Well, what do we pay you people for? We pay you people. Exactly. <laughs> And the mayor's the mayor actually at one point um, thought of exercising a civic responsibility law on mm -hmm. the books at the time, which would have allowed him to close the opera house. Ooh, but he's got to get reelected. Exactly, yeah. and he would have been absolutely destroyed by these people. What a head scratcher! So okay, he tried. You know, he tried his hardest to avoid this, but they didn't. They wouldn't close. So. The word starts circulating that we're going to riot tonight and it's going to be a big deal. Mm. And there was no understanding that this was going to be anything other than a regular theater riot. <laughs> we're going to show up. We're going to throw rocks. Right. The huge. Bring the boys. Exactly. We'll it's just going to be the huge. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No. And honestly, that's the culture. Like, okay. seriously, they do this and then they'd hit the pub afterwards. Wow. Um, Got to drink but, up uh, after all that exercise. But. The, the rich folks had decided that we're not putting up with it tonight, and uh, the rioters who were going to show up had no idea that the military was going to come and try to put it down. Yeah, I don't know if I would have rioted if I had known that there were that many people with, uh, yeah. what did you say they have? Light artillery? What does that translate to? Muskets? Yeah, cannons. I'm sorry, cannons? Yes, cannons. For in the street events? Yes. Okay. Well, in Washington Square Park at the moment, but they would be brought to uh, to the streets if they needed to. If somebody invites you to a riot. And they say the other side's going to have cannons. <laughs> Do you go? <laughs> no. I stay home at that point. 
Oh my god. Okay. 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 So right away, everybody knows that this is a conflagration just waiting to kick off. Right. Uh, the tick. There is a rush for tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where the house managers have to suspend ticket sales because there's too many people trying to get inside and they're actively walking through the crowds Mm -hmm. and voiding the tickets of anybody they suspect to be a, uh, you know, a forest supporter. Oh, geez. Okay. So they're kicking people who have, again, paid money for it Mm -hmm. out of the theater. Uh, And, and so those guys are being forced back outside by the police. Um, you know, protesting loudly. I paid for my ticket. Right. You got to let me in. And having that stuff taken away from them and the tickets sold to other theater goers. And then um, the crowd starts to push. And the hundred cops at the front are just not going to hold back the crowd. The mm-hmm. crowd is swelling uh, to the point where it's not just a couple thousand people. Mm-hmm. It's almost... 10,000 outside. Oh, man. Keeping in mind 100 police officers. Yeah, that's disproportionate. Um, And that's just the people actively pushing. There may have been as many as 15,000 people out there at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just tossing aside the barricades. They're, you know... Police are trying to get them to disperse, and they're throwing paving stones oh, against yeah against the windows. And when that wasn't getting them the results they wanted, they started to throw them into uh, the police officers. So this is already a full blown violent. This is already riot. a full blown violent riot. Okay. Uh, the the play again uh, has to finish in pantomime. I just respect these actors. <laughs> right. I, I think uh, I would have left the theater once the yeah. uh, paving stone throwing started. Well, they have to they have to smuggle uh, McCready out the back in disguise to get him out of there safely because they were very, very worried for his safety. Yeah, no kidding. And, and the wealthy folks just sort of hunkered down. Um, so the rocks are flying. And when I say rocks, I am talking about regular stones from the river and paving stones. Like, this is a huge amount of violence going on right um the the police are completely overwhelmed and then the military arrives so the first thing they do is they send in men on horseback to try Mm -hmm. to sort of break up the crowd but the problem is ten thousand people are packed too tightly for the horses to push and they start pulling officers off of their horses the horses start panicking and then the soldiers show up with their cannons with with their guns and their cannons. Okay. So again, they are under the command of a general, Charles Sanford, mm-hmm. and the crowd is completely out of control. So Sanford orders the soldiers to form a firing line mm-hmm. in an attempt to intimidate the rioters. The rioters still quite don't get that they will be fired on, and they they keep throwing rocks. Um, mm-hmm. At this point actively targeting the soldiers as many as 140 of the soldiers have to be dragged away uh wounded because of this and sanford from sanford's perspective he says basically i'm not willing to sit here and let my guys get hurt Mm -hmm. just to let these folks continue so he gives the order to fire over the heads of the crowd 
Mm-hmm. And they do. And it doesn't stop them. Mm. So the crowd keeps coming. And Sanford orders them to aim into the crowd. And the crowd keeps coming. And Sanford orders them to open fire. Wow. Okay. So they open fire into the crowd. Many people are wounded. And at this point, the rioters kind of figure out what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And they start a mass stampede out of there. This is in the middle of a city, right? This is in the middle of New York. (laughs) It just seems... I know this is... Sorry, I know that the... The conflict is between the militia and these rioters, but doesn't it seem like this is a bad place to be having such a massive, like, gunfight? Yes. There, there, There is no good place to have something like this happen, but this is definitely not an ideal place. It's just crowded, Um, right? There are other people, like, walking around on their own business. And that's part of the problem. Uh, The problem is, is that while the firing into the crowd did disperse the rioters Mm -hmm. very few of the people who were shot and killed were actually part of the riots oh no that was my next question okay yeah most of the a a, a very large proportion of the people who were shot and killed were just citizens walking through um a woman named bridget farron was walking by with her husband along the bowery uh was shot in the leg and died at the hospital Mm. Uh, an old merchant was shot through the neck while uh, keeping rioters out of his store. Mm-hmm. Um, a man was getting out of a handsome cab and was shot through the head. Oh, jeez. Uh, a lawyer was uh, walking around the corner of the Bowery and had his arm destroyed. And these are just and regular people going about their business. Exactly. Uh, oh, people man. as far as like two blocks away were wounded. And one of the one of the hardest ones was that a uh, a guy who he just he had just married his wife. They just had a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was shot in the head while he was standing inside the railing of one of the the local stores, uh, one of the local houses. Nothing to do with the Um, show. Nothing to do with the riot. No, standing. No. Oh, my God. He was just there. And uh, his his wife uh, was the one who had to. Uh, find him at about four o'clock in the morning. Oh. Um. So I feel like we went from a fun kind of rivalry to a bad situation yeah. really quickly. There. Yeah, it turned bad real fast. Okay. Um, the the violence and numbers of the riot mm-hmm. were are usually considered to be the precipitating reason behind why they were ordered to open fire. The United States military had not fired on its own citizens uh, since the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems like it's kind of unusual bordering on irresponsible to fire on your own citizens like that. I understand. It's certainly not the purview. Right? Isn't the military? Okay. Okay. Yep. Nope. You just, yeah. What is their Uh, job? (laughs) Their job is to protect American lives. Okay. Well, that is truly horrific. So in the aftermath, mm-hmm. um, obviously there were a lot of, uh, of questions that needed to be asked. Yeah. Uh, the, the soldiers were guarding the theater through the next day with their, um, 
cannons out there. And this is one of the one of the grossest things for any military historians who might be listening to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cannons were not armed with cannonball. They were armed with they were loaded with grape shot. Oh, man. Okay. And grape shot, for those of you who don't know, grape shot is uh, instead of the cannon firing one big cannonball, it fires basically a whole bunch of small cannonballs. The The point is to absolutely shred through as many people as possible. Oh, and were the upper tens still in the theater at this point? No, they, they, they were escorted out after the rioters were uh, taken out and, of course, returned to their homes, which were in excellent condition because half of the police force uh, had been assigned to guard their homes in case any hooligans got it into their minds to, uh, you know, break their windows or something. Huh. Yep. Okay. Um, a few of the aftermath things. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things that winds up happening was basically a, a group calling themselves citizens opposed to the destruction of human life. Um, hey, finally, a philosophy we can all get on board with. Right? Uh, they uh, they wanted to convene a grand jury to indict the mayor, the uh, general, mm-hmm. the people in charge, basically. Mm-hmm. The actors? Bas- <laughs> nope. The actors The actors were, were, were blameless creatures in this. Oh, come on. I think Forrest at I least know. had... Forrest's hissing was what started all this. Come on. He was, he was, uh, there was the possibility of him getting charged with inciting it, but he didn't directly do that. Yeah, he didn't I come know. out at any point. He didn't like give a speech in front of the rioters. He didn't tell them to do anything. He just sort of was like their mascot. Um, okay. So the findings of the jury mm-hmm. were basically that uh, the soldiers had acted in the responsibility that they were given, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, they were ordered to open fire. The order was given because they themselves were under active threat. Many of them had been wounded by the crowd and the crowd was not responding to the lawful orders to go home. Now, of course, some of this has a lot to do with the fact that law and order had to be maintained at all costs. Sure. Um, But you can maintain law and order without cannons sure it is possible uh, not, in theory right but not when you're defending the more important than other citizens shall we say see um i i feel badly for the soldiers because they were put in an absolutely impossible position I right mean, they were they were also horrifically outnumbered right um they were they were getting hurt and they were you know they were people who in one case, one of the rioters who was killed was a brother of one of the members of the of the military who was ordered to open fire. Jeez. Oh, so it, it, it's just an awful situation for them to be placed in. Uh, and of course, the you know the wealthy issued their statements of of well done, everyone. You did exactly what needed to be done to uh, you know to protect life and property. Right. Uh, yeah, we can't have that property damaged. Can't have that property damaged. Was there any kind of like federal reckoning that maybe crowd control needed to be approached in a different way? Was this like the beginning of some movement towards rubber bullets or something? No. Mm. In fact, this is the opposite. This is the movement towards further militarization of the police force. Oh. It really starts here. The argument was made that the New York City police 
could not handle a, a major mob problem like this. And so the military had to be called in. Mm-hmm. So in order for us not to have the military fire on their own civilians, we must make our police more militarized to better handle these sort of situations. That was the argument that was made, and it's only gone up from there. I have not seen cannons at any of our latest political protests. I I do have to... (laughs) kudos for realizing that cannons are not the right instrument for this it's a bad optic for nothing else uh Um, yeah very bad press um wow okay the other the other fallout that came from this Mm -hmm. uh was that um there was absolutely no fallout for the city's elite the upper tens didn't even get any sort of slap on the wrist or anything there never is any fallout for those people is there no it is um, fascinating. Okay. However, the uh, it's weird how that happens. Very um, strange. However, the Astor Opera House did not survive. Did not survive the riot, or did not survive. Did not survive the fallout from the riot. Uh, it well, became I mean, known. Who wants to have a subscription at a theater with that kind of bad mojo? You know. Sure. It became known as the Massacre Opera House right? or Disaster Place, as opposed to <laughs> Astor Place. That is I like after that my own heart, yeah. I like that one. The um, New York Mercantile Library mm-hmm. uh, it eventually came to possess the building itself. Uh, Edwin Forrest's reputation was badly damaged by the riot, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he was blamed for, for that, but... Uh, his style of American acting, very, you know, sort of heroic and loud style, mm-hmm. uh, really gave rise to the popular acting styles of the day. Mm, um, interesting. And the American style was seen to basically start with him and diverge very sharply from the British style. Interesting. Uh, for his part, McCready returned home, did a little bit more acting. And then uh, retired. And he was very glad to retire. I bet he was, Um, yeah. Over time, the act of going to theaters uh, became more and more gentrified. And Mm -hmm. with the rise of popular sports, uh, that became sort of the, the, you know, place for the working class people to gather while theaters became the province of the rich. Mm -hmm. And uh, Forrest finally passed away in uh, 1872. And uh, William McCready spent the rest of his life in happy retirement. Uh, Good for him. Finally passing away in 1873 in his home in Cheltenham. Um, can we, do you have a sidebar on the Scottish play? Sure. We, do you, I mean, do you want to talk about Macbeth? There's nothing wrong with Macbeth. Uh, so what I read when I first read about this riot was that this is the origin of Macbeth being associated uh, with bad luck. Of the Macbeth curse. Yes. Yeah, the Scottish so play. In the theater world, it is commonly referred, uh, the, the Shakespeare play Macbeth is commonly referred to as simply the Scottish play. If you're um, in a theater, though, if you're out in the open as we are, it's okay to say Macbeth. Is that right? Yeah. Or did I get yeah, it wrong? We're okay. fine. We're fine. <laughs> I don't um, want to pull down any more curses on our heads. Well, the, the traditional curse is supposedly that Shakespeare used a real spell for the witches in Macbeth. And Ooh, so an like actual that. coven of witches um, got offended, cursed the play. <laughs> um, 
a much more reasonable assumption, the mm-hmm. one that, that I really, really like, is that Macbeth is a very popular play. Mm-hmm. However, it can have some very high production costs. Yeah, sure. All that roiling and toiling and cauldrons well, and Yeah. And, uh, and the sets, the castles, the costumes, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it, it's common for theaters to put on Macbeth... Uh, either if they're already in financial trouble to try to make a bunch of money <laughs> oh, no. or that the high production costs of Macbeth can put them into financial trouble, right. which can lead to Macbeth being, you know, the final show that a theater company puts on. Oh. There are all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of, of rituals that you can do to uh, to cleanse the performance of Macbeth. Mm-hmm. However, uh, there is a, a sub clause uh, according to none other than Sir Patrick Stewart, Ooh. Uh, that if you have ever played the role of Macbeth, then you can say Macbeth anytime, anywhere, the curse will not affect you. You're immune. Okay. That was a great episode. Thank you. Oh, thanks for bearing with me. Not at all. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, and we know you do, why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. And a big thank you to all of our followers on Instagram. That's yes. a lot more than we ever expected. Much like this entire podcast. We have, <laughs> this was a podcast that we made basically so our parents could listen to it. And now we have lots of listeners. So thank you, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, Greg, I'd like to ask you if you've ever been scammed. Has anyone ever scammed money off you? Not successfully, but in my line of work, I've had to help a lot of people who've been scammed. See, I've been like asked to join MLMs because I'm a lady of a certain oh, age, but that yep. I don't count that as a real scam. Um, it's a scam. <laughs> it wants to be a scam, but it's not yeah, quite, okay. Like it's not right. convincing enough in this day and age to get me. I think, given my life experience uh, so far. <laughs> but the one thing where I kind of worry a lot about being scammed is investments. Oh, because sure. I don't have any. And I'm afraid that the one that I pick finally when I decide to start a retirement account um, mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. age 65 yeah. will be something that is scammy. So it's something I think about a lot. Uh, are we talking about Bernie Madoff? <laughs> we actually are, but we are oh, actually talking okay. about Bernie Madoff's great, great, great grandpa, Charles Ponzi and the Ponzi scheme. Yay! I so, love it. Uh, next week, awesome. tune in. I'm going to be giving you the uh, the details uh, as recorded in his biography, the Rise autobiography, <laughs> The Rise of Mr. Ponzi, which, as you would expect, is bonkers. A hoot. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and I'll also be giving you the historical facts or what we can ascertain as historical facts because, spoiler alert, he lies a lot in his autobiography. I would not have expected that. Yeah, it's like Baron Munchausen level lying. It's not even amateur oh, lying amazing. like you or I would do if we were trying to scam someone. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds like an amazing disaster and I cannot wait to talk about it with you. <laughs>